The Lord be with you. Yeah, see, I'll just do it normal and you'll be all right. I, the funny thing is, uh, the Catholic Church changed it in 2008 to and give you peace, but you guys haven't been to church in so long, you don't even know that. <laughs> so uh, we'll just stick with it also with you, right? All good. Really, really glad to have you here. I got a, a, a big announcement to make, and I can't keep a secret, so uh, let, let me just do this. First of all, I just got to say something about uh, the shirt. Um, um, let, me, let me do it this way. Circles are better than rows. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that means we need, I mean, this row thing is wonderful. I'm glad that you're sitting in rows, and we can learn together this way, but we can only do life together when we're in circles. We're getting people connected again. We're trying to get everybody connected into a small group, into a life group. We've got a, a bunch of uh, people out there to help you that are wearing this shirt out there that would love to get you connected. Our life groups are going through the story. They're doing this together. It'll really help you grab a hold of this whole concept and make things work really, really well. So I want to encourage you as we start in, in, into a kind of a new season here in January, January, you know, get signed up in a small group. We want to help you. Okay, so here's my big announcement. We bought a heater for the auditorium. I'm sorry. I don't know why it's freezing in here. It's killing me too. Um, I, that's not really my big announcement, but um, from Christmas story, I am the most fierce furnace fighter in northern Indiana, and I'm doing whatever I can to try to get some heat on here for you, okay? That's not my announcement. My announcement is, um, you know, we've been growing a lot. We've had uh, a lot of crazy things going on in, uh, you know, in Christmas Eve and, and with our attendance. Last night, we had over 1,000 at the 545 service. That's a record for that. We had 1,350 people at 345. That service has always been good, um, but things are just growing, and we've got room in this service, which is great, uh, but we usually don't have much room at, at the 11 o'clock service and, and really very little room to grow in the other two services. And so we've decided uh, that starting February 10th, we are going to start a fifth weekend worship service. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be awesome. I mean, Wednesday night at midnight. And I hope that you guys <laughs> nah. No, here's what, here's what we've decided, and we're going to call this an experiment, we're going to call this an experiment, but we're going to do a Sunday night service, okay? It'll be, uh, it, it'll be something between, you know, five or six, somewhere along the lines in there, uh, because it's really hard to try to get three with the crowds that we have to get three, you know, loads of cars in and out and all those kinds of things on Sunday morning, and there's just not enough time to make those things happen, so we're going to do a Sunday night service. It'll be exactly the same service, full band, <clears throat> full worship, full children's ministry. I mean, we're going to do it all the way. Okay, it'll be full worship. It'll be full children's ministry because some of our children's people were saying, you know, there, uh, you know, there are a lot of divorced families who only get their kids, you know, like every other weekend. And if we, they've said to us, if we had a Sunday night service, we could have our kids back by Sunday night, and we could go, you know, they could be involved every week, no matter whether they're with us or their other parent. Um, so we're gonna, we'll have all that going on. Um, I'm gonna preach it. Uh, the way that's going to work is um, I'm going to try to stick to only preaching four times a weekend. So sometime during the weekend, and you won't know it, there will be a video of, of whoever the preacher is. I shouldn't say me. Whoever's preaching is going to be on video. And uh, we're going to do some new configurations so that you've got a, a nice setup here like we have at Lockport. And uh, we're going to start getting used to video. Because the truth of the matter is we'll have six services someday and seven services someday because this is a big auditorium. We want to use it to God's glory. And there's a limit to what uh, a, a, a energy a, a pastor can bring to anything to a week. Weekend, uh, you know, four is what I think is going to be it. So sometimes, uh, if you're a nine o'clock.
o'clock or sometimes you're going to have a video and we'll still be here and everything will still be normal but it's going to be it, it, it we got our lockport campus doing it our other campuses are going to be doing it we want to get used to it all the way around and we're set up for it now with our hd and everything will be good um we really we really want to encourage you um some of you to think about coming. I mean, what would it be like to be able to sleep in on Sunday morning, you know, be gone all weekend, whatever you're doing, and be able to get back for a Sunday night service? We want to think about some of you to think about coming. We need you to think about getting involved in serving uh, because we're going to obviously need volunteers for that. We're going to need to be rallying up. And we weren't planning on this, guys. I mean, we didn't budget for it. We weren't planning on this thing to happen. Um, but the, the 18,000 people at, at, at Christmas Eve, and then, you know, we've had 7,000 a weekend back the two weeks since then. Um, we know that there's an opportunity here that God is moving and we're going to make room for people. Uh, Jesus said in in Luke 14, go into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And so I'm going to tell you to do the same thing. Maybe there's some people in your life that, you know, they've been like, well, I can't come on Saturday night because I work and I'm not going to get up on Sunday morning. I'm not going to church. You've got a new opportunity to say, hey, if you want to come, I will come with you. We'll do this uh, Sunday night thing. Come come to church and let's try it again. I mean, that's that's what we really hope is going to happen. Uh, We're not doing this to ease congestion in the other services really we're doing this so that there's more opportunity all the way across for people to find out about jesus okay let me take a little survey because we haven't picked a time yet Uh, and we're going to start february 10th because we were going to start february 3rd until somebody figured out it was a super bowl and that (laughs) that have been real smart um so (laughs) so february 10th in three weeks um I'm going to give you three options. I want you to vote by a show of your hands. If you were to come, I'm not, I'm not saying you're, you're volunteering to come, but if you were to pick the time that you think would be best for you on a Sunday night, I'm going to give you three options, 5, 5.30, or 6. Which one would you like? All right, raise your hand if you're a 5 person. Okay, a 5.30 vote, kind of in the middle. All right, how about a 6? That's unbelievable. 8. Yeah. You really sleep in a lot on Sunday, don't you, dude? That's awesome. Well, and the other thing we thought, that's really fascinating to me. I mean, we'll, we'll do some work on that. But, but the, the, the other thing we thought we'd do is since Sunday night's such a big TV night, after it's over, we can just all, we'll have Sunday night football on this screen, <laughs> Walking Dead on the middle screen, and Daunton Abbey on the other screen. Okay, how does that work? So, you know, you can kind of just come and say like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going home. Um, I want you to be in prayer about it. We're really excited about it. Staff has rallied. The volunteers are rallying. We really think this is going to be a great opportunity. It's going to be a little crazy, but that's what we're going to do. Um, we're calling this Bacon Church around here lately because uh, I just made this illustration a couple of weeks ago that God is bacon and idols are like turkey bacon because they don't satisfy. They don't fill you up. And we're going to have some more of that in, in Jeremiah today. But, but, but the bacon thing is just kind of blown up. I've got, I just was given bacon jerky by the Lynn family here just a minute ago. And I'm thinking, you guys, I'm, I'm thinking bacon jerky, isn't that just like bacon bits? I mean, that, that's not really that special. But I'm going to enjoy this this week. Thank you for this. Um, I, I, I found, um, like, ladies, if you want your man to smell really, really good, there's bacon-flavored shaving cream. He can smell like heaven all day long. Isn't that awesome? And, you know, Valentine's Day's coming up. I just want to give you a little heads up on that. Uh, Alicia sent me this idea from Pinterest. You could make bacon hearts for your husband. Great, right? And you know, ladies, there's only two things your man wants for Valentine's Day. Bacon and, well, if you don't know by now, you're already in too much trouble. So you better get a lot of bacon, okay? 
maybe even a dozen bacon roses. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, that's a good day right there. We're, uh, we're going through the story, and um, some, you know, I just want you to understand, this is the Bible. Somebody said to me recently, why don't we just use the Bible? This is the Bible. Every word in here that's not italicized is directly out of the New International Version Bible. We've just taken bits and pieces. They took bits and pieces and put it together. It's not unlike any time you carry a New Testament around in your pocket. You've, you've only got part of the Bible there. They left part of the Bible out and put part of the Bible there. Or the Psalms or, or a devotion book or whatever. What they've done is they've taken the Bible and they've cut out some of the stuff and they put the parts together and they put it in chronological order so that you, because the Bible's not written that way, so that we could get a hold of it, we can understand the big picture of the whole thing. But every word in here, other than the italicized words, which are Max Licato and Randy Frazee kind of paraphrasing something to help us get to the next section, every word in here is directly from Scripture. We're going through this. Uh, because, and next week is Daniel, man. You've got to read next week. It's, it's one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. But we're going through this so that you can get the, the puzzle picture. And the problem that we've been running into over and over again is idolatry. At this part of, of the history of the Israelites, it's idolatry over and over again. Whenever we substitute turkey bacon for bacon, it's not the same. Whenever we substitute something else for God, it's not the same. And, and we hear all this stuff about idolatry and we think, well, that's not really my deal. I mean, I don't have an idol. I don't worship anything. But it's really interesting, John, the Apostle John, who was the last surviving apostle of Jesus, the last thing he said was, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is in the end of the New Testament, just before he wrote Revelation. This is the last thing he said. So idol worship in John's mind is still going on all the way up to this part, which is like later, way past Jesus' day, and I believe that it is still going on today. Matter of fact, Tim Keller is one of my favorite preachers out of New York City. He, uh, he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods in which he said, I tweeted this this morning, the central principle of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry. I mean, think about that. It's over and over and over again in there. And I, I believe what the problem is, is that we think that we don't have a problem with idolatry, so every time the Bible brings it up, we're like, oh, I'm, got, I'm good, I got that. That's, that's no problem. Listen again to the first two commandments, okay? The first 20% of the Ten Commandments. God spoke these words, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That, that maybe that's what we ought to stop with because he goes on and he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. And here's where we get messed up. You know, heaven, earth, water below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So, so we, we start to think in, in terms of the Old Testament and what they really did was bow down and worship something that was made in the image of something from heaven or earth or whatever because that was their practice. But, but, but at, its, at its core principle, idolatry is always a problem. And I agree with Tim Keller that the rejection of idolatry is the central principle of the Bible. Because whenever you put anything else on the throne, God gets off the throne, your life gets messed up. Martin Luther said it's impossible to break any of the other commandments until after you've broken the first two. Until after you've taken God off the throne, put something else on the throne, then you can kill, then you can steal, then you can cheat in the Tour de France. Only after... Okay? Only after you've replaced your God. And you say, well, I don't struggle with idolatry. I struggle with lust. Well, what is lust? It's worshiping sexual pleasure, really, at its essence. 
And giving in to those thoughts and giving in to those desires or whatever that is, is taking God off the throne and putting something else on the throne. You say, well, that's not my, you know, I don't have idolatry problems, but yeah, I'm, I'm a little materialistic, you know. I'm greedy, I'm jealous, I'm envious of other people's stuff, and I, I wish I had more all the time. Well, well that, that, that's just idolatry. You've just taken God down and put something else up there. Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart is. That is, in essence, the principle of idolatry with materialism. And it, it, it rears its head as materialism or discontentment or jealousy. But at its core, you've really just replaced getting your happiness, your joy, your contentment from God with getting it from whatever it is you're struggling with. Or, or, or you say, well, I don't have idolatry problems, but yeah, I worry a lot. I'm anxious. I, I'm, I'm concerned. Jesus said, why would you worry? Your God knows... He, he, knows, he takes care of the sparrows. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. Why, why would you worry? Well, the only, the only thing that would cause you to worry is when you take God off the throne and put, some, put, put your, your security or your comfort or something else on the throne, and you say, wow, I, 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 you know, I don't know if God can take care of me. And that's idolatry. Do we have idols? You know, it is almost Super Bowl time, although nobody cares at this point. It is almost Super Bowl time, and the thing we do care about are commercials. So here is one of my favorite all-time commercials. Do we have idolatry? And now we're back in the living room. And now, bedroom. And... Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Here's the problem. The Apostle John said it well. Here's the problem. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Okay? We know, we know that God has given us understanding so that we can know what is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Okay? What he's saying is there's true here. If you haven't got the true thing, he mentions it several times in this passage, God has given us understanding to figure out what is true. And if there is true, then that means there is false. And if we follow that which is false, we're going to end up in the wrong place. If we follow that which is true, we're going to end up in the right place. That's the, that's the bottom line with this idolatry thing. There's nothing wrong inherently with a, a fridge full of, you know, Heineken or a closet full of shoes or turkey bacon or, or, or whatever it is that you have put up here. Many times our idols are actually good things that God has given us, but we've put them on the throne instead of God and we've made them more important. And so our lives become about the false instead of about the true. And anytime our priority, it gets shifted to what is false from what is true, our lives become false and we end up in the wrong place. Did you hear the news story this week about the woman who followed her GPS 900 miles the wrong direction? Yes, I did say it was a woman. Yes, I did. She, she, she ended up, listen, she ended up in Croatia. She was from Belgium. She ended up in Croatia. She was trying to go 90 miles to an airport in her own country, but she kept listening to that stupid voice on her windshield, which was wrong, and she just kept going. 
She got gas twice. She slept on the side of the road. She was involved in a minor accident, but she kept going. I, got, I, I copied it down. She said, I was distracted, so I kept driving. I saw all kinds of traffic signs, first in French, then in German, <laughs> and finally in Croatian. Good thing she's bilingual. But I kept driving because I was distracted. And suddenly I appeared in Zagreb, and I realized, Toto, I don't think we're in Belgium anymore. I added the Toto part. They say that um, men won't ask for directions. I mean, come on, 900 miles out of the way. What, what is that? There is truth and there is false. There is true and there is false. And if you follow that which is false, and that's what happens to the nation of Israel over and over again, they follow that which is false and they end up falling off a cliff. They end up going the wrong direction. They end up in Croatia. Okay, no offense if you're Croatian. Okay, They end up in the wrong place because of that which is false. Not only that, but it just doesn't satisfy. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God made us, invented us, like a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself, and he himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on, the bacon, okay? There is no other that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion and God because God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. There is truth and there is false. You're going to be fulfilled by that which is truth. I could tell you so many stories of people who've come to me and they, well, you hear it on the news. You hear a celebrity say it. You know, I, I, I thought, you know, getting the Golden Globe was going to be it for me or I thought doing this or I thought that or having this money or having, you know, all these things and for some reason I'm still not feeling happy. I'm still not feeling fulfilled. Why? Because, because you're, you've been filling up with the wrong thing. There was an episode of The Office where Michael filled up his car with diesel to save money, you know? It just doesn't work, Okay. It just doesn't work at all. So you're going to end up in the wrong direction and you're going to be unfulfilled. And some of you are here today and you're like, wow, you know what? You're kind of describing my life. What is that? That's really about our idolatry issue. It's really about taking God. It really goes back to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then all these other things will be added to you. Like I said, some of these things we make idols are things that God wanted us to have. They're good things. The relationships, even, even material possessions, uh, every good gift comes from God. But when we let them replace Him on the throne, we end up in Croatia and, and our car is not running very good. That's why I keep coming back to the why of idolatry. If Keller is right and the central principle, the central premise of the Bible is the rejection of idolatry, why is that? There could only be two reasons. Number one, God is really insecure, and he's up in heaven going, oh, I wish they would worship me. Or number two, he really loves us, and he cares about us, and he knows that we're going to end up in the wrong place, and our engine's going to be ruined. And I'm voting for number two, in case you don't know. Of course, it robs God of the worship and the adoration that he deserves. He deserves that, but, but he hates it not because of that, as any parent doesn't hate it when their kid disobeys them because they're mad about them disobeying them, they're, they're upset because of the kid. That's who God is. He's our father. And he's upset because he knows that we're going to end up in Croatia or we're going to end up on the Oprah show telling everybody that we're a fake or we're going to end up finding out our girlfriend was made up on the Internet. I mean, how many current illustrations do I need today? Okay? 
so, so what happens is God keeps sending us prophets over and over and over again to tell the people, uh, you're going the wrong way. You're on your way to Croatia. Do you see that sign in German? You ought to, be, ought to know something by now. This isn't working. Today we get to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not a bullfrog, but he was a friend of mine. I just do that as a test to see how old our audience is, and it's really way older than it ought to be, Casey. Um, God, God, is, uh, God, God sends these prophets, and Jeremiah is a great one because he gives us another illustration today. Because, I mean, you're going to have like 15 idolatry illustrations by the time you're done with this, and you need them. We need them because I need them. Okay, let me review. There's two kingdoms. Uh, the, the, the kingdom of God, his, his people, the kingdom of Israel, have been split up. They've had a little divide, and there's two of them, the nation of Israel to the north, the nation of, of Judah to the south which is also, uh, you know, there's a Samaria thing going on at the same time, and, and, and the Jews, when we even get to the New Testament, and there's that thing going on, that's why, okay? Uh, it's because of this division that's been going on for a very, very long time. And God keeps sending prophets and prophets and prophets, and 33 out of 38 kings are bad. So the, the time of the kings in Israel's history is really not going very good. And he keeps sending prophets and telling him, you're, you're, headed, you're going to end up in Croatia. And finally he says, you know what, I've had enough. You're going to have to figure it out on your own. I'm withdrawing my blessing from you. And the Assyrian army with 185,000 people, uh, soldiers, comes in and attacks the northern kingdom and takes them over immediately. And the northern kingdom is scattered throughout the land. Okay? And, and the southern kingdom has seen what's going on. And thankfully they get one of the five good kings... They get Hezekiah, who wakes up, after he hit the concrete, he wakes up and he, sa- he says, you know what, we're going to follow God, we're going to clean out the idols out of the temple, you know, we're going to get our people's hearts drawn back to God again, and we're going to follow him. And I know there's a big army out there with 185,000 soldiers, but we're going to go to God and see what happens. And as soon as they go to God, which we're seeing this story today, as soon as you go to God, he welcomes you back. And he said, oh, okay, you guys are back, cool, all right, boop. And he sends one Chuck Norris angel in to wipe out 185,000 soldiers. It's like one little verse in the Bible. It's like, no big deal. Yeah, 185,000 soldiers, no big deal. Boom, that's all I got to do. Why? Because the arm of flesh is nothing against the arm of God. This is what we talked about last week. But Hezekiah is a man, and he's going to die someday, like all of us. And his son, his son gets to take over, and his son's name was Manasseh. And his son Manasseh was an idiot. Um, that's in the Hebrew. Manasseh, <laughs> Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these detestable sins. He has done more evil than those who preceded him. More evil than those who preceded him? I mean, you're talking about Ahab and Jezebel more than all of those? Yeah, he's done more evil than all those who preceded him. And he led Judah into sin with his idols unbelievable, right? How could you grow up in Hezekiah's home? How could you grow up and see what God... How could you see 185,000 soldiers get wiped out with one angel and decide, oh, you know what? I don't like that God anymore. I'm going to go worship this statue. And Manasseh is such an evil king, he even sacrifices one of his sons to an idol by burning them, okay? I mean, literally that kind of a guy. So God says, uh, okay... All right, well, I guess, you know, Hezekiah was great, but you guys need to learn your lesson too. So I'm going to let somebody come in and conquer. It's been, I've been funny as I've been thinking about this this week. When you, start, when you read about Nebuchadnezzar, and you're going to do that next week with Daniel and some of this stuff, and Babylon and this mighty power of Babylon, 
the only reason Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar have any power at all is because of that one little verse in Scripture where God wiped out the Assyrian army. I mean, the Assyrian army would be in power right now, except God went, boop, and they're no longer. So Nebuchadnezzar comes along, and you're going to find as you get into next week especially, that God can use the evil foreign kings to do His will just as much as He uses everybody else. And He says, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, you guys can come on in and you can conquer these people. Um, You can have it. And, And God allows the drastic stuff to happen. 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in. They take the Jerusalem people captive. They destroy the temple. And most of the people are carted off to Babylon or, or different places, you know, spread out all over. Their kingdom is big. The Babylonian kingdom is very, very big by this part, point. And a few people are left in Jerusalem. Just a few people are left. And one of them is Jeremiah. And Jeremiah's job is to preach God's word to people. Now, here's the good thing about Jeremiah that you need to know. Jeremiah was not like those idiots from Topeka that stand at, you know, at the corner of a funeral for a soldier with a sign that says, God hates idolaters. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. And part of that was because it, I mean, it appears that he was depressed over the situation a lot in his own life, and he was lonely in his own life. But part of the reason we call him the weeping prophet is because he cared about these people, and he literally wept over these people. He pleads with them, please turn back from your false gods. Please turn off that GPS and stop going that direction because you're going the wrong direction. He, he knows where they're going. I mean, literally, they might be in Croatia. I mean, you know, I don't know where Babylon's territory was, but they were going the wrong direction. In Jeremiah 2, verse 9, God speaks to Jeremiah and says, here's what I want you to tell the people. Therefore, I bring these charges against you again. Just want to point out that word, again. Has a nation ever changed its gods? But my people have exchanged their God, their glory, their worthless idols. This is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, God's up in heaven going... What is with you people? Nobody changes gods. Who changes gods? I mean, even the people that worship the false gods that aren't even real, they don't change their gods. You have a God who, with one angel, wiped out at 185,000 people army, and you changed your God. My people have exchanged their God, their glory, for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens. Hey, angels, come here and look at this. I want you to see. Be appalled at this. And shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. And here's the problem. My people have committed two sins. Here's your new illustration for idolatry. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They've rejected the living water, which is flowing right here, and they've decided to dig a new hole over here to gather the water and to do their own thing. A cistern is a hole that they dug into the ground that would hold water. I mean, it's a helpful analogy. Idolatry is a cistern that doesn't hold water. That's literally what it is. It's just that simple. That's what a false god is. There's another new illustration for you. It was really common for the people of this day to be, you know, digging these holes. Archaeologists have looked and they've seen thousands of holes dug over there because it didn't rain for six months. So they would go dig a hole and, and they, would, they, they would let it fill up with water and then eventually they, they would have to dig a whole bunch of holes because when it rained for six months they wanted them to fill up uh, and they looked kind of like you know the pond did at your 
grandpa's farm, right? I mean, they, there's no water flowing in or flowing out. They're just nasty. And, and they did, had to do something to collect the water because that was their only water source. And, and they dug them, and then they'd, they'd get holes in them, and they'd try to plaster them up, and they'd try to fix them. And, and sometimes that would work, and sometimes it wouldn't, and they'd go dig another one. God said, this is what's going on. But here's where it got ridiculous. He says, you're digging these holes, and I understand that sometimes you have to do that, but there's a spring of living water right here. Why would you exchange the living water for this pond scum? You're digging this water. You're trying to scoop out this stagnated cistern water. And it's idolatry. That's what it is. You're rejecting me, the God who with one flick of my finger can wipe out an entire army, the God who can do the impossible, the God who breathed life into you in the first place. You're rejecting me so that you can go over here and play around in your stupid little pond. And, and the, yeah, yeah, I mean, it might quench your thirst for a little bit. Okay, this is where, I, I mean, I like the water analogy. It might quench your thirst for a little bit. You're not going to die. But how silly is this? I mean, do you know how hard it is to dig a well in the Mideast? Do you know how hard it is to dig a hole? I mean, you know, if you want to know, I'm going on a Holy Land trip next Memorial Day. You're welcome to go with me. I'll give you a shovel, and you can figure out how this is. This is not Illinois. There's no one-foot layer of topsoil and then some clay underneath. This is like concrete. So these people, while there's a spring of living water right here, they're digging these holes. And, and again, the water quality is going to be its going to be pond scum. It's going to be stale and muddy and nasty and full of insects. That's what this water is going to be. And, and instead of going to that spring, they're going back over here. Matter of fact, Jeremiah even says it this way. Your wickedness will bring its own punishment. Your turning from me will shame you. You will see what evil and bitter... That's what, it, that's what that water tastes like thing it is to abandon the Lord your God and not to fear Him. When we turn from Jesus Christ, when we turn from God to the things that other things, when we do the idolatry thing, that, that's when it gets really, really bitter. And you know what I mean because I know what I mean. Right? Lance Armstrong knows what I mean. I mean, he didn't set out to be a liar. He's an inspiration to thousands of people. He raised a ton of money for cancer research. He was an unbelievable story of his comeback. And probably, I think all of us would say, you know what, I, I could forgive the, you know, the, the illegal drug use on your way back from cancer because you, you, know, you were way down and you had to come way back up. I get that, but what happens when you start sinning is, you know, it just makes it easier to keep sinning, right? And everybody's doing it. And, and, and one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden he woke up one morning on the Oprah show uh, known as Croatia, and, 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 and came, you know, clean, and now his life is full of bitter. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing how it happens. Um, I can't pass up this opportunity to say something because <clears throat> this Tuesday is a very important day. Listen to Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb... God told Jeremiah, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Um, this weekend, actually Tuesday, marks the 40th anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision in the United States of America, making abortion legal. And you know what that is? That's 40 years of broken cisterns. 
And I know that many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know that many of you have had abortions and you've encouraged abortions, and I don't want to make it more difficult for you. You probably realize by now that that water was bitter, and you realize that that cistern didn't hold any water. But I need, I need to tell you this, okay? I need you to, I, I, your broken cistern is no worse than mine. I've dug plenty of broken cisterns in my life that didn't hold water, I can tell you that. But this verse, along with a whole lot of others in the Bible, uh, tells me that life begins in the womb. So don't believe the lie that it's a medical procedure. And if you are out there, or someday maybe this clicks in your brain, and you're out there with an unwanted pregnancy, please let us help you. We've got information for pass out there. We want to help you because, because we don't want, it. Not, not just that we love your baby, but it's that what I know is that that's a broken cistern. And I could let you talk to hundreds of people who would tell you, you know what, I thought that was going to solve my problem, but it, it didn't hold water. In our story, God literally tells the angels, look down at these people and shudder at what they're doing drinking from this crummy water. So you know what this is? Um, parents, how many of you have taken your kids to Disneyland or Disney World? Just gonna, let, me, let me see your hand, okay? I think better than broken cisterns is my illustration of taking your kids to Disney World. No offense to you, Jeremiah, but let's go with this one. You decide to take your kids to Disney World. You spend all the money on the plane tickets, or worse yet, you go cheap and you drive the minivan for 20 hours <laughs> to Orlando. Feeling me, right? And you get about to Nashville and you're like, man, we should have bought plane tickets, right? Oh, yeah, okay, all right, yeah. So, so, so you're on your way, you finally get down there, you've been telling your kids about Disney World for a really, really long time, and they seem excited about Disney World, but they've never been to Disney World, so they don't really understand. And you finally get there, and you get into your hotel, and when you get into your hotel, there is a problem. And you know what the problem is? It's a swimming pool. As a matter of fact, it's a cistern, now that I'm thinking about it. And your kids see the swimming pool, and they're so excited about the swimming pool, right? And they're so excited about this swimming pool, even though they've been, they've been swimming a million times, and you have a backyard pool in your own backyard. The only, you've driven all the way to Orlando, and the only thing they're excited about is the swimming pool. And you wake up, feel me? You wake up the next morning, and your kids go, Daddy, we don't want to go to Disney World. We want to go to the swimming pool. And you get a little twitch behind your right eye. <laughs> Are you with me? You feeling me? Right? And, and you, you control it and you say, but, but kids, don't you want to go see Mickey and Donald and Cinderella's castle and, 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 and go on the rides? And don't you want to buy a $12 bottle of Kool-Aid and a $60 t-shirt? And they say, no, we want to go swimming. <laughs> Do you remember the feeling? Raise your hands if you're in my support group today, okay? My name is Tim, and I'm a Disney-holic. That, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, if I was an entrepreneur in Orlando, I, would, I, I promise you I could make a million dollars, billion dollars, by building a hotel that did not have a swimming pool. I would advertise it as a cistern-free motel. Your kids will still want to go to the park that you paid a million dollars to come to. 
That is the image of how I think God feels. I think when God was calling the angels over and going, look at this, they want to swim in the pool, and Disney World's right here. Look at this. I think God had a little twitch behind his eye by this time. I really do. Because he knows something so much better, and he's gone to such lengths to provide us the living water. And all we want to do is go over here and drink out of this nasty, stupid swimming pool water. And some of you have watched this as a parent. I mean, I, I come back to this because, you know, the whole Manasseh thing. Some of you have watched this as a parent. You've watched your children, and at some point they have to make their own decisions. And I think about Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, who grew up in Hezekiah's family, and he grew up seeing all these things, but he rejected it. I blogged about this recently, but the, the, the alarming trend in religion in the United States of America is that the fastest-growing religious group in the country is the group that doesn't believe in anything. They call them the nuns, not like Catholic nuns, but like N-O-N-E-S. The rise of the nuns is the, was the front page of the USA Today article that I saw. They're the people that don't believe in anything. And out of those group, out of the nuns, the group of people that don't believe in anything, the fastest, the largest demographic group of those are 18 to 29-year-olds. I mean, this, this generation that's coming along a lot of them are rejecting all this stuff, just like Manasseh. That's what made me think about this with Manasseh. And here's the really alarming thing. 73% of those who now claim no faith at all grew up in a religious home. I mean, honestly, it is, is one of the reasons why we're providing a fifth service and we're going to add more room here. And one of the reasons why, you know, I do the goofy things that I do to try to relate to the next generation other than the Jeremiah was a bullfrog thing. It's why I, other, other, other things that we do, we're trying to be able to reach the next generation because we want them to come along because you do, because I'm a parent of those people and I want my kids, I want our kids to come along and I want them to have the living water because I've seen my generation drink out of this water. I've seen my generation end up in in Croatia. I've seen the generation right after me end up there, and I want the, the next generation, I want my kids, I want them to drink from the living water. And sometimes all you could do for these people, parents, I'm, I understand what you're, where you're feeling today. Sometimes all you can do is cry. Here, here's Jeremiah's lament, okay? If you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride. But my eyes will weep bitterly, overflowing with tears, because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. He's pleading with them. What I found interesting about this is that he's praying over Jerusalem, and so did Jesus. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. I mean, honestly, honestly, I want to start a Sunday night service like I want a hole in the head. <laughs> do you think I have nothing better to do? Why would, I, why would I want to do this? Why would our staff want to do this? Why would, why would any of us want to do 12 Christmas Eve services? I mean, it was fun. I loved the Bethlehem Rhapsody. I like to laugh. But the reason that we do this thing is because I see my generation and I see the people all around me and I, and I weep for them and I want them to find Jesus. And they're not all going to find it by coming here. We've got to go to them. But, but I want to do whatever I can to make sure that they have the opportunity that they can find Jesus because sometimes I just weep over what's going on. And with tears, Jeremiah is really expressing the heart of God because that's what God is doing. He, he's, 
he's so sad that his people won't drink from the living water. So here's what I want you to help you with as I, as I close this down. Okay? Um, here's what I want you to say. Here's what I want to say to you. If you are constantly digging new cisterns and looking for something besides God, ain't nobody got time for that. That's what I want to say. You know what I say to you? If you're patching up constantly the cistern that you've already dug and things are already, you know, patching it up again, what am I going to say to that? Ain't nobody got time for that. I know you want to say it too. So here, let's just do this together. It's such a waste of time. It's such a waste of energy for you to think about doing something else when the living water is here. So all together, will you just say it with me? Ain't nobody got time for that. I want that phrase to pop into your mind the next time you start trying to dig something out over here. You start trying to fill yourself up. You start wondering, why am I feeling so discontent? Why am I feeling so bitter? Why am I feeling like I'm not fulfilled? Oh, wait, it's maybe because I don't have time for that. I need to get back over here. I'm in Croatia. It's time for me to return. Jesus uses a lot of great analogies for himself in the Bible, but there's an obvious one that he uses today about the living water. He, in John chapter 4, he meets a woman who has been married five times and is living with a guy that she's not married to now. And, and she's literally, what is that? Six cisterns that she's dug. For whatever reason, I don't know why, for whatever reason, six different relationships that she's dug, that she's tried to fill herself up with, and she meets Jesus at the well. And Jesus says, listen, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Anybody got time for that? But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water. You won't even have to go anywhere for it. In you, it will become a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. That's what I promise you. God said, Jesus says, I am the living water. I'm right here. My arms are wide open. And listen, this message is not for them, okay? It's not for those people out there. This message is for us. This message is for God's people who started out wanting to follow God, wanted to start out wanting to follow, follow Him and be close to Him and, 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 and let our GPS take us back to Him. And somewhere along the way, we just got away from the source of the living water. And we're not dying of thirst because this quenches over here. We're just drinking the nasty stuff. We're just swimming in the swimming pool instead of being in the happiest, real happiest place on earth, which is the kingdom of heaven that God wants us to live in. And it didn't happen overnight. We just gradually walked away. And here we are. Good question. Good jars of clay song. Good question. Is there grace for a wayward heart? <clears throat> Some of you may be here today and feel like Manasseh, like the prodigal son who's run really, really far away from home. Really interesting to me that as the prodigal son, Manasseh, when he gets captured, when the temple gets destroyed, when God's punishment finally comes upon him and he finally wakes up, the story Bible tells us, the Bible tells us in Second Chronicles 33, in his distress, Manasseh sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Finally, and when he prayed to God, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and back to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. All he had to do was turn around and head home. <clears throat> And the gracious Father was ready to turn and to come to him. Maybe you're far away today and 
you need to hear that verse. You need to understand Jesus told the same story in the New Testament. The Father is going to run to you as soon as you turn around, as soon as you repent and turn and come back to God, as soon as you realize your GPS has been taking you the wrong way, you've been drinking from the wrong water, you're swimming in the pool, whatever, whatever it is, as soon as you turn and come back, He will welcome you home. A lot more of us probably haven't been Manasseh. We haven't been, you know worshiping idols that much but our spiritual life has just slowly gotten away from the living water of of jesus christ and it's gotten over to where you know it feels kind of stale it feels kind of bitter i'm not i'm getting quenched but it's not very satisfying i need god in my life again really fascinating story i didn't have any time to really dig into but i got to just read it to you from the end of our passage in the story when jeremiah's gone and ezekiel has come along and ezekiel is the new prophet and and, and the nation of israel's been spread out and they're all over the place and they're you know they're not where they ought to be they're not where they once were and they're all probably at this point starting to think you know what we should have followed god in the first place and God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to these bones. He takes him to a valley, takes him to a big valley that's full of bones. I, I, I kind of like to imagine maybe it was the Assyrian army that the angel had wiped out. It was, a, it was a valley where obviously there'd been a battle and there were a lot of bones there, just a lot of dried up bones. And, and he says, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered the bones, and they came to life, and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy to them and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them, and I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and then you people will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. That's my prayer for Parkview Christian Church. This is my prayer for Christianity in 2013. Is that God will, will be able to speak into the dried bones that all of us are full of because we've been over here in the wrong water. And that he will raise up a, a vast army, that he will bring us back to the promised land. He will bring us to a place where, where we will be a mighty army again, a mighty army of love to go out and to change the world. And I pray that for you. I pray that for us. As we take communion today, I, you're going to eat a piece of bread that represents Jesus' body, and you're going you're to drink uh, some juice that represents his blood. But maybe our analogy today is as you're filling up with this, Imagine that, you know, this is what Jesus said, I am the living water. That this is the living water that's going into you because he said it flows from you if you have him. Let's pray today. God, thank you for this communion. pray that you'll be with us as we worship you. I do pray for our dry bones. All of us go through periods when our bones are dry and maybe there are people in here who've been walking in the... Croatia for a long time. They've been, they've been swimming in the swimming pool and, and they've really missed out on the, the most amazing journey of the living water and the kingdom of heaven that can be alive in us right now. I know I do that. I get caught up in my idols. I get caught up in the things of this world and I, and I turn from seeking first your kingdom to the other things. And the other things never fill you up even if you get them. But if we turn to you, the other things will happen and you can fill us up. So 
speak into our dry bones today. And if there are Manassas there, Lord, that have been far from you, let them turn to you right now and say, Jesus, I'm coming home. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want to follow you. I want, I, I want to jump in. I want to get involved. I want to join a small group. I, I, I want my life to change. I want, I want from my bones to be resurrected. Breathe life into me today. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. For all of us, we're going to commune and we're thankful, so thankful for this sacrament. Just a moment when we can recognize that the living water is actually inside of us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.